Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Albert Einstein was a great universalist. But as Richard Staley reminded us in the Naked Reflections podcast about his legacy, he was not above making a wry joke about the shifting way people might perceive his ethnic, national or religious identity. In Germany, he's understood as a German man of science and that for the British at the end of World War I, he's thought of as a Swiss Jew. Um, And he notes that if the circumstances were to change just slightly, if he becomes a Benoit, then it will be reversed and English people will think of him as a German man of science and Germans will think of him as a Swiss Jew. But, of course, it was deadly serious. Um, He had, in fact, already faced anti-Semitism. He was already defending his theory from people who were um, responding to him primarily as a Jewish physicist. Um, So he understood just how strong and important chauvinism is um, and how much it can affect um, intellectual attitudes even. We need look no further for a clear example of how treacherous these shifting sands can be than the quandary the Labour Party in Britain found itself in. The 2020 Human Rights and Equality Commission inquiry found that the Labour Party had committed unlawful acts and was legally obliged to draft an action plan to right these wrongs. Anti-Semitism is our topic this week. My guests are Luciana Berger, who was one of Jeremy Corbyn's shadow cabinet team, but who then left the Labour Party in protest about the party's stance on this issue. And Dr. Julian Hargreaves, who is senior research fellow here at the Wolf Institute. Julian has undertaken research on anti-Semitism as well as Islamophobia. We're not just focusing on the Labour Party, though. We go right as well as left and will explore the presence of anti-Semitism, including its relationship with anti-Zionism, in Britain today. Welcome both. I'd like to focus on the present in Britain, but perhaps we could start with some historical context. Julian, a huge subject, but a brief summary, please. A huge subject indeed. So a summary that could be written onto the back of an envelope uh, might look something like this. To gain an understanding of anti-Semitism, we need to begin with a definition. So a definition that a lot of listeners, I think, will understand from a common sense perspective is anti-Semitism is the hatred of Jews. That's also a definition which is integral to the most widely accepted current definition, which is something we might talk about later. Another way to understand anti-Semitism is to take the long view and to develop a historical understanding of it. So we might take a series of giant leaps through history. Now, we could start back in Egypt uh, with the pharaohs and the Israelites. But for the purpose of this discussion, a suitable place to start is with the formation of the early Christian church. And early Christians wanted to make themselves distinct from uh, Jews and Judaism and did so by relying on the concept of Jewish guilt, the idea of divine punishment for the killing of Christ. If we fast forward a thousand years, jumping over lots of important historical events shaping anti-Judaism, we might find ourselves in medieval England, 
we know that Jewish communities were spread far and wide in London, York, Lincoln, Norwich, etc. And we know that they were stigmatized on the basis of being traders and moneylenders. So one of the most striking tropes of anti-Semitism is this idea of Jews as being dishonest. And that comes really from the medieval period. We might also see other examples in the medieval period. Jews were blamed across Europe for the Black Death. They were attacked by crusaders in Germany. They were also blamed for killing of children, the poisoning of wells, ritualistic cannibalism, all accusations which were as horrific as they were false. If we then take another leap forward, we might find ourselves in the 19th century. And there were two concepts born out of the 19th century, which had catastrophic effects on the European Jewish population. And these two concepts were the concept of biological race, which begat biological racism. And the second concept is the concept of nationhood, which set the Jewish population as being outside by various sort of countries. Are Jews really German? Are Jews really Italian? If we bring ourselves right up to date, we can see another manifestation of anti-Semitism in a very virulent form of anti-Israeli sentiment. Now, this is a controversial subject. Some people feel that accusations of anti-Semitism are made in bad faith. Other people feel that a new form of anti-Semitism can be described by these anti-Israeli attitudes. So there we are, a whistle-stop tour. Okay, thank you, Julian. Well, let's take it into the Westminster context. Luciana, there's been a great deal of publicity about anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, but is this a cross-party problem? Sadly, you know, racism pervades still in all quarters of our society. I don't think it's confined to one party over another. I can only obviously only reflect on my personal experience of having been a Labour Party member for 20 years and my experience and that led me to lead the Labour Party and what ultimately led to, as you pointed out, the um, findings of the Equalities and Human Rights Commission. You say it's a, it's a societal problem. Let's drill down a bit and tell us a little bit about your experience and how things changed for you as an MP when Jeremy Corbyn became leader, because that does seem to be a pivotal moment in contemporary anti-Semitism. It certainly is a pivotal moment in contemporary anti-Semitism on the left and the permission space given for it to find a place in in, in quarters that were more broadly accessed and uh, more broadly witnessed. Certainly, uh, when I was first elected and I was an MP back in 2010, I did not experience that much anti-Semitism. It's fair to say that I've held roles in public for a number of years. So I got my first piece of anti-Semitism when I was on the National Executive of the National Union of Students back at the start of 2000. But certainly when Jeremy Corbyn became leader of the Labour Party, there was a, a massive influx in a, in a new type of membership within the party that came from the far left. Um, I was a member of parliament in Liverpool and sat in my constituency meetings, the people who had been up until that point confined to the history books. They'd been previously involved in militant militant tendency and had found themselves excluded from the Labour Party. But with the election of Jeremy Corbyn, found themselves welcome back in. And that's all many people join who, you know, as we're discovering even even this week, and people that simultaneously held positions on um, parties further to the left of the Labour Party. And certainly what came about was a massive toxicity and a massive permission. And and examples are well catalogued of the 
depth to which the anti-Semitic comments were being made on Facebook groups, comments and things that were being said in, in meetings themselves. I experienced it both locally in Liverpool and also in and around uh, my experiences in Westminster and it, it got very ugly. I think the worst experience was in the last year in the run-up to my departure from the Labour Party where the volume and depth of the toxicity of, of what was happening online was on a level that I'd never seen before. Julian, you've been researching anti-Semitism. What, what have you uncovered? I've been researching anti-Semitism using statistics, which is not the most common form of study for people involved in academic research around anti-Semitism. One of the things I wanted to address with that particular study is that during the debates around anti-Semitism and the Labour Party, uh, the public are used to hearing from experts and used to hearing from politicians about what constitutes anti-Semitism. We don't often hear from everyday members of Jewish communities. We really wanted to address that Uh, imbalance. More recently, we've been looking at anti-Semitism online, and that's a a project which is still ongoing. We're working closely with the Anti-Semitism Policy Trust and the Community Security Trust, both leading uh, Jewish think tanks in this country. And we've been looking at across Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Can we delve into some specifics now? We've talked about it in general, but give us some examples, Julian, from your research, specific examples of, you know, how Jews, for example, perceive anti-Semitism, what is and what isn't anti-Semitism. And then I'd like Luciana to touch on what she thinks is at the root of left-wing anti-Semitism. Let's get down to brass tacks. Julian first. It's a sensitive topic and it's difficult to speak about this without using offensive terms and you know offending people listening. So I'll be really careful. But Things that I think most Jewish people would find offensive would be the idea that the Holocaust has been exaggerated or is spoken about for sort of political purposes, if you like. Uh, So that's anti-Semitic. Equating Israel to the Nazi party to say that Israelis act like Nazis, I think, is commonly held to be anti-Semitic. Then you get more general tropes around dishonesty, around power and control. So the idea that Jewish people secretly control banking or secretly control large institutions is widely accepted as anti-Semitic, quite rightly so, of course. And then you get a sort of more subtle form of anti-Semitism, which is also widely held, uh, was certainly widely held by the thousand or more people we surveyed. And these more subtle variants are things like disloyalty. So uh, Jewish people feeling more loyal to Israel than towards their the country in which they live or the country in which they were born. Uh, this idea that Jewish people are sort of outside the mainstream or not quite part of the community or the society. The more subtle, but to most Jewish people, what considered anti-Semitism. And, and Luciana, what about what lies at the root of the left-wing anti-Semitism? It's a very, very important question. And certainly looking at the history and seeing you know, what's happened now and responding to some of the points that have already been raised, um, I think it charts back to the earliest days of the mid-19th century of left-wing thought. Kind of this question, are Jewish people a religion or are Jewish people a nation? Uh, and where in the class structure do the Jewish people exist it's kind of far left thought about what will the future be of the the Jewish community if and when capitalism is defeated 
you know, the far left very much holds a view that it wants to emancipate people from capitalism and an anti-Semitic uh, evolution of that core belief. In order to liberate people from capitalism, you need to liberate people from the Jews that they believe that are behind capitalism. Uh, and certainly, as we've already heard, it's clear that that's very much um, a thought about you know, Jews being in control of money, being you know, Jews being in control of power and um, it's interconnectivity that the far left see between those concepts and emancipation from capitalism. Just to add to what Luciana said, I think if you wanted to generalise about anti-Semitism on the left and on the right, it's most often the case that sort of left-wing anti-Semitism, as Luciana has just said very concisely, is really about power. On the right, it tends more often to be about purity, about racial purity. Obviously, there's overlaps and there's both types of anti-Semitism on both sides. But if you wanted to break it down simply, one is about emancipation from capitalism and the other is about building racial national purity. This is Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler, and my guests are Luciana Berger and Julian Hargreaves. We're discussing anti-Semitism. It's obviously a form of racism which we know is widespread in society. Racial bias can be unintentional or unconscious. And here's an extract from Horizon magazine that appeared on the Naked Scientist website, which illustrates this in a medical context. In the US, for instance, a compact medical device called a pulse oximeter, designed to gauge the level of oxygen in the blood, had some coronavirus patients glued to its tiny screens to decide when to go to the hospital in addition to its use by doctors to aid in clinical decision-making within hospitals. The way the device works, however, is prone to racial bias and was likely calibrated on light-skinned users. Back in 2005, a study definitely showed the device most tended to overestimate oxygen saturation levels by several points for non-white people. Julian, anti-Semitism is obviously a form of racism. Is it distinct because it perceives itself as not just kicking down, but kicking up at stereotypes of prosperity, influence and so on? This is a really interesting question. So for some people, anti-Semitism is a, a sort of form of kicking up, if you like. We've already discussed issues around power. And so certainly for people on the far left with interest in challenging capitalism and sort of neoliberalism, there is often a sense that Jewish people institutions are a legitimate target because they represent inequality or a banking system or a financial system which works to the detriment of, of the working classes. I wouldn't say it's unique in that regard. And I think when you think about anti-migrant sentiment, particularly in this country, uh, there's often a sense among some groups particularly white British groups, that they are powerless in the face of waves of migrants who take jobs, take resources such as education and health. So the idea of kicking up is not unique to anti-Semitism, but I think it manifests more strongly in anti-Semitism than it does in other forms of racism. It's become a cliche of these sorts of discussions, but can we explore where criticism of Israeli government policies falls into anti-Semitism? It's a very difficult one, but Luciana, help us navigate that. Anyone can engage in legitimate criticism of the Israeli government, its leaders and its policies. You know, 
certainly I do that all the time. And it happens within the Israeli society where there's you know very vibrant discourse and, and debate. Um, the challenge is when that spills over into treating Israel in a way differently that people would engage in that discussion and debate and criticism and level that attack towards other countries. And also when you find, as I experienced on many occasions, people in this country being held responsible for the actions of a foreign government in the case of Israel and holding all Jews across the world responsible for government's decisions and the things that they may and may not do. And certainly also the discourse, you know, very clearly looking at the language that can be used as well, where, again, on occasion there are groups and elements that choose to pursue and make their criticisms anti-Semitic in nature. So it's a sort of exceptionalization, if you like, of Israel in comparison with other countries of the world. And it's blaming Jews around the world for those policies. Those are the two areas that fall into anti-Semitism as far as criticism of Israel is concerned. Julian, when we talk about Israel and we talk about Palestine and Middle East conflict, of course, we can't help but actually look at that tense relationship. And I want to move on to, if you like, Muslim anti-Semitic sentiments that exists. Again, it's how to realise it's a very sensitive subject, but how do we tackle that? And what is it? What is it? It's lots of things, isn't it? It leads from what we've just talked about in terms of Israel-Palestine. So it can be a very virulent form of pro-Palestinian attitudes. The Arab Barometer, which is a survey run from Princeton University, has shown in the last couple of years that across the Middle East, support for Palestine and support for Palestinian causes is dropping down the list of priorities in other countries. So we see priorities being things like the tension between Saudi Arabia and Iran, rather than support for Palestinian causes per se. So we're seeing a sort of shifting pattern of anti-Semitism across the Middle East, across what you might call simplistically the Muslim world. Julian, we're touching on questions of relations with Islam and Muslim anti-Semitism, but of course you've looked into Islamophobia and I'm just wondering whether there are similarities and differences between Islamophobia and anti-Semitism and whether it sheds light specifically, as we're talking about it, on anti-Semitism. Yeah, I've done quite a bit of research into Islamophobia and I've done research comparing the two concepts as well. The first thing to say is that as a concept, anti-Semitism is much older. And I think this explains the consensus among Jewish communities as to what constitutes anti-Semitism. It has more of a common sense understanding. Islamophobia really as a concept has only been with us for around 30 years. The concept of anti-Semitism for over 100 years. So that trickle-down effect hasn't really happened, I would argue, within Muslim communities. So what do we know about the anti-Semitic sentiment then in in the Muslim community? Is it familiar in in terms of the tropes that we've been discussing? Is it centred on on Israel and Zionism? What you might refer to as Muslim anti-Semitism is an extremely sensitive topic. And it's one that the Wolf Institute has just started to approach with the help of Islamic scholars, in particular the Cambridge Muslim College. So I would really defer to those guys uh, and their expertise on this matter. What we can say is that it does engage with a lot of the tropes which are familiar to anyone with an interest in anti-Semitism. So the idea about dishonesty, greed, power are common 
There's a reliance on pro-Palestinian attitudes. And as we've discussed, these attitudes are undergoing changes as shown by current research. So some of the same tropes are there. Some of the tropes rely on constructions of the Quran and the Hadiths, which I think we're probably better off discussing at a later stage with Islamic scholars on this podcast. How should we respond, Luciana, to the claim of Jeremy Corbyn and others that they have spent a lifetime opposing racism and therefore are kind of intrinsically in the vanguard of fighting anti-Semitism? I listen to those words, but I look more closely at the actions that we have seen, regrettably, from Jeremy Corbyn himself and the people around him and his supporters, of which, unfortunately, there's a there's a wealth and depth of anti-Semitic statements, comments and abuse. And when you have to look most recently at the findings of the Equality Body, the Equalities and Human Rights Commission, that have found the Labour Party guilty of harassment, guilty of racism, discrimination. And in fact, it's the first organisation in this country to be issued with an, a legal notice to act, which they have to comply with over the course of the next few weeks. And, and that's as a result of an 18-month investigation, which looked very, very closely at the evidence, which showed you know, where these things are happening. And there's a catalogue of evidence that, that backs up where this is sadly reared its very, very ugly head. So people can call them what themselves what they'd like to call themselves. It pained me greatly that the, the party that I joined, in part because of the pillar of anti-racism that it had at its core, you know, that those very values were being denied and were being challenged. So anyone can can say whatever they want and, and give themselves whatever label they wish to, but we judge them by what they actually do and, and in fact what they've now been found to have done by this statutory body as well. In that case, are you optimistic about the future and curbing of anti-Semitism within the Labour Party? And, and I suppose, Julian, the second part of that is, is in society as a whole. But Luciana, what about the Labour Party right now? I think there's a very, very long road ahead. You know, and again, the party will be judged by its actions and what it actually does. You know, we're only just speaking today in the wake of that report and its findings, which only actually sought to confirm the experience of me and, and many others. And um, so it's actually what happens as a result of that. I've got no doubt that Sakir Starmer, the new leader of the Labour Party, um, has every intention to bring forward the structural change necessary. And there are many different things that need to happen in practice and real reforms, um, particularly around the complaint system. My worry is about how he will be able to contend with the culture. And I'll be looking to judge the outcomes by both the structures and and the culture. And again, regrettably, we only have to look at the thousands of messages that have been posted across social media in recent weeks to know that the toxic anti-Semitic culture still very much pervades across the left and still you know, amongst people who still today retain membership of the Labour Party. And that is a very, very tricky conundrum that Sakir Starmer will have to contend with. I agree with uh, Luciana. There's a, a long road ahead for the Labour Party. In terms of being hopeful, there are certain events and occasions that provide hope. We've seen lots and lots of English football clubs and the Football Association adopt the new definition. We've also seen universities across the UK adopt the new definition, which means that there's a much more unified sense of how how to tackle this 
among people for whom uh, maybe this definition is new or, or maybe for people who are turning their attention to anti-Semitism for the first time. The thing that gives me less hope, and I've been looking at this uh, across the internet on social media, anti-Semitism is multifaceted. So it can pop up on the left and it can pop up on the right. It can pop up when people on the far left want to talk about Israel or power. It can pop up when people are in the mood for populism or thinking about racial and national purity. And it's that attribute of anti-Semitism which makes it hard to eradicate. It's uh, easy to identify. It's becoming easier to address but the eradication of it is a tall order. You've touched on the IHRA definition, Julian, and, and Luciana talked about deeds rather than words. What difference does that practically make, the fact that the FA have adopted? I think it's very significant that we now see a massive body, that, again, a, a real array and range of different organisations across our country having adopted this definition. And it's not just in our country, it's in other countries as well. So it's great to have that international standard. But again, it's, it's putting it into practice. What it does is provide a really helpful framework. And it's something that I was at the centre of battling with was to try to get the Labour Party to adopt that definition along with all of its examples. The examples are, are many. It's also not an exhaustive list. It's also not saying that these examples would necessarily always be anti-Semitic, but it gives some context because I think part of the challenge here is that it's often below the surface. People often don't see it. Um, and therefore, definition serves a really important purpose to bring that to life and um, to explain it. But it's clear that, you know, we still have a massive job to do. I think just generally when it comes to equality and racism in our society, we've certainly made great strides, but there's still very much progress to be made. But to have the leadership of organisations like the Football Association, like the university bodies, really kind of grabbing this by the hands and putting their full weight behind this definition at this time certainly serves to um, show the leadership. And then you know, it's obviously what happens to cascade that down into respective organisations and bodies. But it's very totemic. It shows how this is something that certainly people are coming alive to that they need to contend with in whatever walk of life it is that they exist within. It's interesting. I, I've noticed the decline in racist chanting, anti-Semitic chanting at football matches in the sort of 20, 25 years that I've been attending football matches. Now, what happens when there is racist chanting is it's called out much more than it was 20, 25 years ago. And I know it's anecdotal and it's a personal experience, but it's real. And I suppose what I'm looking for as we come towards the end is what real examples are there of progress as far as tackling anti-Semitism are concerned? I mean, forgive me, I mean, I am not as optimistic as you are in the football area where Millwall fans made racist chants against those players that took the knee in their recent football match. So, you know, that didn't fill me with positivity. Um, so certainly, again, there's many examples we can point to where there's I mean, massive work to be done. I was speaking just the other day to the editor of, of, of a woman's magazine who for the first time had an article in it about anti-Semitism. The fact that, you know, we are talking about these things more openly, that certainly is a mode and means by which we can point to the progress um, that we'd like to see. So, again, the fact that we now don't have a situation within one of our two main political parties where, you know, regressively you know, anti-Semitism pervaded, that is significant as well. So I like to be positive about the future. The Runnymede Commission called its report on anti-Semitism a, a light sleeper. Would you agree with that title, Julian? Absolutely, I would. History has shown us that different moments 
have led to the emergence of anti-Semitism in different forms. It's capable of uh, changing its nature. It's capable of enduring periods of quiet and then re-emerging when the political climate is right for it, you know, right in inverted commas. I share Luciana's mixed feelings, actually, about the future. I think that the IHRA has focused people's minds. You know, within academia, I experience casual anti-Semitism a lot. You know, I've had people tell me that a person is Jewish and that's all you need to know about them. People have said to me, oh, well, you know what Jews are like. Uh, these, you know, these are educated people with, with PhDs and academic careers, you know. So it's all pervasive. But I think we're normalising our sort of negative attitudes towards anti-Semitism more and more. Whether that will have an effect on reducing anti-Semitism, we, we will find out. And a final word. For you, Luciana. So that report, uh, if I remember the exact title, I think it was that anti-Semitism is a a very light sleeper indeed. Uh, And certainly, again, we can point to many moments in history over many centuries and indicate that it's something that has bubbled under the surface and at moments erupted. And it never stops and ends with the Jews. People often also say that anti-Semitism is the canary in the mine. You know, why do I seek to tackle anti-Semitism? Because... I know where it could lead. It doesn't just lead to abuse against Jewish people. It leads to abuse against other minorities as well. That's all for this week. Thanks to my guests, Luciana Berger and Julian Hargreaves for shedding some light on this contentious subject. Next week, we'll be tackling Islamophobia. We'd love to hear from you at Naked Reflections. Contact us via Facebook, email or Twitter. Let us know where we're going wrong or what we're getting right. And if you'd like to catch up with our back catalogue, which includes episodes on nudge theory, racism, and many, many more, you can find them and subscribe to Naked Reflections podcast wherever you get your podcasts or at nakedscientists.com slash reflections. I'll be back next week with some more guests.